You know, it's interesting. Psalm 22 and verse 3 says in the King James Version that the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. The ESV says the Lord is enthroned in the praises of His people. The reason that that's interesting is because it's essentially saying that our praise has the ability to make an earthly dwelling for our God. So it begs the question, is the praise that we're offering up making our God a mansion? Or is the praise that we're offering up making our God a shack? Is the praise that we're offering up making our God a throne? Or is it making Him a broken down stump? It's just something to ponder on because when we come to God in worship, we should come with every fiber of our being knowing who we are coming before and offering up worship. We should come knowing that we are not just worshiping some abstract form of thought, but we are worshiping a very real, very living, very powerful, majestic God of glory. Um, So we're going to be in Matthew 25, verse 31, um, if you guys want to turn there. Today is a super important, super awesome, blessed day because today is the fifth and final message of our series on John 3.16. So kind of before we get started in today's message, again, that's Matthew 25, verse 31. Um, So today's message um, is going to be the conclusion of our John 3.16 series. But before we get started in today's message, I want to kind of go over the past four weeks because... Maybe unbeknownst to everyone, but I have been building up for this moment. So I'm going to finalize the message before I preach today, if that makes any sense at all. If not, it will shortly, trust me. So we started this message or this series on John 3.16, and we started by looking at the context of the conversation. A man named Nicodemus, a ruler, a Pharisee, came to Jesus in the middle of the night, and basically he said, We know that you're sent from God because no one could do the things or speak the way that you speak unless he was sent from God. And Jesus begins to go and divulge and say some pretty awesome, mysterious things. But essentially, he says that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. And then he goes on and he says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Nicodemus says, What is it to be born again? How can a mature, grown man be born again? Am I going to enter into my mother's womb a second time to be born again? And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Essentially what he's saying is, what you're saying is very real observation, but you're talking about a natural birth, and I'm talking about a spiritual birth. I'm saying being born again as in being born of the Spirit. So the question when John 3.16 seemingly comes into the conversation It's Jesus answering the question, how to be born again, how to be born of the Spirit. And Jesus, preceding that verse, makes a scripture reference of Moses in the desert. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert, thus the Son of Man must be lifted up. And what Jesus is implying is that in the desert, when the children of Israel had sinned, they were being bitten by poisonous vipers and they were dying of their of that bite because of their sin. And Moses interceded. God said, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a staff, lift it up. Everyone that looks upon that bronze serpent will be healed of the poison. And what Jesus is saying when John 3.16 comes in, he says, just like that, just like the children of Israel could look on the image of the thing that was killing them, the Son of Man is going to be made sin, lifted on a cross. And if you look on that which is made sin, he who knew no sin but became sin, If you look on that, 
which became sin, then you can be healed from your sin. Isaiah 45.22 says, Whosoever looketh on God, whosoever looketh on me shall be saved. It's easy to look. Anyone can do it. A child, an adult, someone that's crippled in their body, someone that's partially there in their state of mind. Anyone has the ability to look. Even a blind person can look with the heart because he's not talking about physically looking on Jesus because Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago. He's talking about looking on Jesus in the Spirit with the eyes of your heart. So, in our series, each week we have said and answered the question, salvation is all of what? In the first week, we said salvation is all of grace because it was God's gift of His Son to us that constitutes the ability for us to partake in salvation. So salvation is all of grace. Week two, we began to actually divulge and delve into John 3.16. And when we got into John 3.16, before we got into the quote-unquote meat of the verse, we pointed out that so often we skip over the most important word in the entire Bible. So often we skip over God to get to what God said or what God did or what God accomplished or what God said He was going to accomplish. And we never really take a second to just look and meditate on God, that He's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, He who is, who was, who is to come, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that He is our healer, our sanctifier, our righteousness, our king, our banner, our shepherd. We just need to take a second. So in the second week of this series, we took a second and we just looked on the majesty of God, that He is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, that He is the Holy One of Israel, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we focused on the majesty and the splendor of God. And then we looked at the word for. The way that John 3.16 begins, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life. We looked at the word for and we realized that it said for God, that God is the one who initiated this, that God is the one who caused salvation to come to pass. So often in our mind we have this mental image and it doesn't help that a lot of early Catholicism even painted images reflecting this, that God the Father is angry at the sin of man and He's ready to strike them down with a lightning bolt and Jesus jumps in the way as like a selfless martyr and gets struck down on our behalf. But that is not the way that it happened. The way that it happened is God, before the foundation of the world, knew the sin of man and knew what was coming, and He chose to arrange a method so that man, in their fallen state, had the ability to be saved through His Son, Jesus Christ, that God is the initiator of salvation. So when we looked at John 3.16 and we looked at those two words, for God, we realized that God, the Holy One, is transcendent far above and beyond anything that we could possibly fathom in our finite mind, but yet He is so imminent, so near, so right here that He is loving enough to send His Son so that we might have salvation through Him. So the answer to our question in week two was salvation is all of God. So week one, salvation is all of grace. Week two, salvation is all of God. Week three, we actually got into so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And we looked at the word so and how so is actually a word that has a double meaning in the one instance it talks about the great emphasis and the great extent of God's love how powerful it is that it isn't just for God loved the world but it's God so loved the world and it shows that extra emotion that extra attachment that extra emphasis on the love of God that he had towards the world and then we looked at so that it says in what manner God loved the world and that manner is that he gave us Jesus Christ And we looked at what that meant, that God gave us Jesus Christ. We realized from Romans 8.32 
that he that spared not his only son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And we realize just by simple deduction that if God gave us Jesus, who is the most valuable object in the entire universe, in creation, anything that has ever existed, anything that ever will exist, anything that has any being at all, Jesus is at the top. He is the pinnacle and the summit of all value. And if God was willing to give him to us so that we might be saved, that shows the love and the emphasis that God has on us and our value to Him. He delivers us because He delights in us. We are more than conquerors, not because we have the ability to conquer, but because we are the very prize worth fighting for to begin with. Jesus gave Himself. God gave Jesus. So when we answered the question in week three, salvation is all of it's all of Jesus Christ, the manifestation of God's love. You can put all of love. You can put all of Christ. Salvation is all of Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the word, whosoever believes. And when we looked at that, we delved into the parable of the sower and the different types of seed sown on different ground. We looked at the fact that sin and unbelief can harden the ground of our heart because we are earthen vessels. And we looked at those who have their heart hardened by sin and the seeds cast upon it and the devil comes and he strips that word away sometimes even before they leave the sanctuary. Sometimes shortly thereafter while they're having lunch at whatever restaurant they so choose that day. But either way their hearts harden through sin and unbelief and the devil strips that word away. We looked at those who have rocks or things in their life and in their heart that they don't want to let go of, whether that be tradition, whether that be sin, whether that be family ties, or they don't want to believe this because somebody is affected in that way. If they, don't, if they choose to believe in healing and they weren't healed, or if they choose to believe in this and this didn't occur for them, then that means that they have to realize that there's some other reason in their life that it didn't affect them in that way. So they choose to hold on to those rocks and the seed takes root. But because of the rocks, it can't take full root. And so they grow up and they look like a Christian, they talk like a Christian, they act like a Christian, and maybe they never were to begin with. But when the persecution comes, when the storms and the trials of life come, and the sun beats down and the heat comes, they die and they, they become either apostate or maybe they never were saved and they begin to show that they were never saved to begin with. And then we looked at those who were sown and then the thorns and the cares and the worries and the stresses of life come and it chokes out the Word by blocking out the sun because the li their cares of life become so busy and so numerous that they can't get any reflection from the sun. And even their roots that they had established where they were pulling in moisture from the revelation that they'd received in the past, even that becomes choked out by the roots of the thorns and they, begin, they shrivel up and they die. But lastly, we looked at those who have their hearts softened and they're ready and they receive the word in gladness and they bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And so when we looked at all of that, we realized that John 3.16, it's whosoever believes and continues to believe, whosoever perseveres to the end, to him that overcome will I give eat of the fruit of the tree of life. So we looked at that and we realized the answer to our question the fourth time, salvation is all of faith. So now... We look at the past four weeks and we can realize salvation is all of grace of God through Christ by faith. How am I born again? By receiving the grace of God through Christ Jesus by my faith. And the answer to our question today, every week I've been waiting to the end of the message to give you the answer, but I'm going to give you the answer at the beginning and then preach the message if that's okay. The answer for today, salvation is all of 
eternity. All of forever. So let's look at it. How am I born again? I'm born again. I'm born of the Spirit. I am saved by the grace of God through Christ by faith and it is forever. For all of eternity. That's pretty good stuff, I think. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all of the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the title of this message, if you do titles, is Hell's Inexpressible Anguish or Heaven's Inconceivable Joy. When all is said and done, when all the chips are on the table, when everything is calculated, the end of time comes, there's only two types of people in this world. Two types. And I'm not talking about black, white, green, yellow, pink, purple people. I'm not talking about rich people or poor people. I'm not talking about young people or old people. I'm not talking about pretty people or ugly people, fast people or slow I'm not talking about any of that. What I'm talking about is those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and those who are alive in Jesus Christ are the only two categories of people. It says every person of every nation all of time sat before Jesus. And what did he do? He separated the sheep, those of eternal life on his right, and he separated the goats and those that are going to eternal punishment on his left. Two categories, two types of people. All the chips are down. Two types of people. Leonard Ravenhill, probably my favorite minister of all time, said this quote. And he was preaching on a night, so I'm just going to say the quote in the context when he said it. He said, Tonight, if there are a million roads into hell, there's not one road out. He said, Tonight, if they sing in heaven, worthy is the Lamb. Tonight, they sing or moan or scream in hell. The summer is past, the harvest is over, and we are not saved. And of course, he was making a reference to Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where Jesus says, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that enter into life everlasting and few there be that find it. 
broad is the gate, wide is the way that entereth in destruction, and many be there that find it. See, we have this picture in our mind of hell, and we have a picture of the devil, and most often we picture him as a little red guy running around with a pointy tail and horns and a pitchfork. And we think that our torment in hell in a cartoonish atmosphere or paradigm is that the devil's running around poking people in, in the hind end or the hindquarters with his little pitchfork. And that's the torment and agony of hell. And that could not be further from the biblical truth. Hell isn't hell because God is not there. Hell is hell because God is there in every single ounce of His unrestrained anger and His unrestrained wrath. God is there in every single fiber of His wrath and His fury against sin. The devil isn't going to be the one tormenting you. Jesus says in the passage we just read that the devil and the angels are the ones that are reserved for that fire. The devil has the torment of his own. Hell is hell because God's wrath is the torment for eternity. David cries out and he says, Lord, where will I go from your presence? And through several different circumstances, he ends up making this statement. He says, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. Even there's nowhere you can flee from God's presence. Even if you find yourself in hell, it's just a different aspect of God's presence. See, heaven is the unrestrained wrath of God. Heaven is the unrestrained blessing and favor of God. See, Noah, when the flood came and God wiped out every single individual on the entire earth except for eight people, that was God's wrath restrained. When the plagues hit Egypt and boils, people dying, the firstborn were slain, people's cows and their livestock were dying and they were starving, they were bitten by lice and fleas and all of that, that was God's restrained wrath. Every person that ever got struck dead in the in the scripture, every person that ever experienced sickness, every person that was ever plagued by the wrath of God was God's restrained wrath. Hell has no restraint. God's fury is absolute, it's entire, and it's unequivocally unparalleled. The agonies of hell are so terrible that Jesus makes one of the most profound statements in scripture. And it's only profound if you actually think about what it's saying. Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Because it's better to have one eye the rest of your life than have both eyes and go into hell. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Because it's better to have one arm and stay and go to heaven than have two arms and go to hell. If your right leg offends you, cut it off. Because it's better to have one leg and limp the rest of your life than to have both feet and be thrown into hell. Can you imagine the agony of what's awaiting if Jesus says, if your eye offends you, gouge it out because what is coming is so horrible that it's better that you maim yourself than enter into that? Can you imagine the torment that that consists of? I mean, just for a second, can you imagine the pain that it would be to gouge out your own eye or to cut off one of your limbs? That's excruciating. People have actually experienced that in life and go into shock and they die because of that. But yet Jesus says, that's way better than going to hell. He ends that statement by saying, the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And there's several different aspects and different theologians and scholars have tried to identify what the worm is. The worm could be a spiritualization of a of a depraved individual. The worm could be playing off of in Isaiah where 
God says to Israel, thou worm, Jacob, and refers to the nation of Israel as a worm. The worm, but in my opinion, the worm is one of two things. The worm is a natural worm, and you as an individual experiencing unrestrained curse, unrestrained disease, unrestrained decay, but cannot die, the worm coursing through you. And the worm doesn't die, and the fire's not quenched, and you and individuals where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth will scream for death to come, but there is no death, there is no end, there is no oblivion, it's forever, it's eternal, it does not stop. So the worm could be a natural worm. The second thing that I believe that the worm could be, and this was actually first introduced, at least I first heard it by a man named David Wilkerson, and he was preaching, and he preached that the worm is the consciousness of man. And the implications of that are this. If you're in hell, and it's pitch black, and there's flames and probably elements that we don't even know of because God is God. He made these elements. What's to prevent Him from making elements that we know not of? And the pain, you hear the screaming of your own torment, and the screaming of others, the torment that you're experiencing, the torment that others are experiencing, inexpressible anguish. On and on and on, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, all of this agony, all of this pain, inexpressible agony. And all of a sudden, you're in your living room. There's no pain. And you're sitting on your couch. And I'm just going to use this if it was my perspective because that way nobody thinks I'm talking about them. Snap. I'm no longer in hell, but I'm sitting on my couch. I run to the kitchen. And I see Faith standing there. And I say, so I run to the bedroom and I see the kids and they're playing. I run back to Faith and I said, Faith, Faith, I don't know if I've had a dream or a hallucination. I don't know if that was drug in my food, but I've just had a fit or something because I had a dream that I was in hell. And she said, well, it's okay, it's okay. Would you like some water? You want a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I sit back down, turn on the TV, and it's a Billy Graham sermon. And he's wrapping up his sermon. He's doing an altar call. And he's basically saying, if you would come right now and bend, drop on your knees and accept Jesus as Lord, you will not enter that wrath. And because of the dream that I just had, I drop to my knees and I'm like, but nothing comes out. Because in hell, I don't have the ability to cry out to Jesus. I don't have the ability to experience salvation. And snap, I'm back in hell experiencing torment again. And maybe the next time, I snap back and I'm sitting in a congregation, in an auditorium. There's a famous preacher up on the podium preaching and I'm like, I, now I remember this because it's not just inventing new things, it's playing back your memories every time you had the opportunity for salvation and turned it down. Every time you had a track placed in your hand, every time you heard the gospel preached, every time you ever had the opportunity or the thought crossed your mind to pursue after God and you turned it down and you rejected it, every single time, that's in your consciousness and it's going to be relived countless times throughout eternity. Maybe this time I'm sitting in the congregation and I'm listening to a preacher that I know and I'm hearing a message that I know and it's the simple gospel message and all I've got to do. So I don't even let him get to the altar call. I stand up and I say, help me somebody, but nobody sees me because this is my consciousness. This isn't their memory. This is mine. They can't respond to me. And I just say, help me. But no help comes and boom, I'm back in torment again. Can you imagine the pain and the sorrow from being teased again and again and again with the opportunity and the potential to receive salvation and it being yanked away from you? That's essentially every time we turn down the gospel message, that's what we're doing to God. We're teasing Him that we might come this time, that we might come this time. He knows what we're going to do. It's not like He's fooled. 
but we're playing with God. It says that the Lord shall laugh. The Holy One shall have them in derision. I can think of, there's countless agonies of hell specifically, but I can think of four. Four agonies for me personally that would be beyond bearable. And the first one is unrelenting fear. Now I know that in this congregation, men like to be manly. You know, we like to be the brave ones, the tough ones. You know, there's a noise out in the living room and it's not time. You're the one that investigates it and you're, you're boxers with a baseball bat. You know, men like to be tough. But every single person in here has experienced fear at one point in time. Whether you're out in the woods and you've been hunting a little bit too late and it's getting dark and you're heading back and before you know it, it's pitch black and maybe your markers are, you know, the things that you see to mark your way back. Maybe they're not as familiar looking at night as they were in the daytime and you're a little bit lost and something moves in the, in the bushes beside you and that <gasps> because you fear the hair on the back of your head stands up, your lungs kind of collapse, your heart starts beating out of your chest, you start breaking out in a little bit of a cold sweat. Everybody here knows what that feels like in some degree or another. We know fear. But can you imagine that consuming fear that puts you with that fight or flight mentality, but you can't move because you're frozen, being all over you all of the time without relenting? That in of itself would be excruciating. The second thing is unsatisfied lust. And this is a little bit of an odd one, you may think, but there's a lust. And I'm sure everybody's experienced it in some way or another. But there is a type of lust that consumes you. Where it literally, and let's just use this because this is part of my testimony. We'll just use the drug addict parable. There is a lust that consumes you to the point of an addictive bondage. To where it literally morphs who you are if you go without it. It puts people into withdrawals and people have literally died from withdrawals because of lust. They, a son will kill his mother for drugs if it, the addiction gets severe enough. You'll rob your friends. You'll beat people up, mug people. A friend of mine from West Virginia when I was in high school, his older brother was doing three life sentences. And he was sentenced at the age of 17, but he was tried as an adult because he tied an old man up and beat him to death to rob his house for money for drugs. And the crime was so heinous that he got three life sentences. But that's not who he was growing up. That's just what that point of lust pushed him to. And the reason that I'm saying that and describing that as an agony of hell is because that lust, imagine that lust and what that does to your body, the sweats, the sickness, the, the crippled paralysis that it can put you to without ever having satisfaction. If it's a lust for, for drugs or for alcohol, then you'll never be satisfied. If it's a lust for, for women or for men or whatever, then you'll never have satisfaction. So your lust will be there in full force, but you'll never have satisfaction for it. The third thing is pain. And you can put under this category sickness and disease and all manner of torment with that pain pain that has no parallel, that never stops, that never ceases, that's never satisfied, whether that be the pain. Have you ever, you've been burnt 
where you like, you know, you have something on the stove and it's been sitting there for a minute and so you think it's cooled down and you grab it and you jerk your hand away. And no matter what you do, cold water, not cold water, some kind of ointment, some kind of bomb, it just burns and it hurts. And third degree burns, you know, people say that there's very few parallels for the pain that a third degree burn and a first degree burn can cause. I don't remember right on top of my hand if first degree is the worst or third degree is the worst. But regardless, third, okay. Well, regardless, the pain that can be caused by a burn. And there's fire there that's everlasting fire. There's torment there. There's pain there that's everlasting, unceasing, unrelenting pain. Sickness the same way. Sickness and the curse is caused by sin. And this is where the punishment and the curse of sin is unrestrained. So that sickness is full force. Every disease that's known to man and even those ones that aren't known to man are going to be on you individually full force, but yet it's not going to kill you. You're going to experience all the repercussions, all the side effects, all the negative aspects of it, and it's not going to kill you. And it's not going to have an end. And then the fourth thing, and this I believe is the most painful one of all for me, is guilt and regret. Not just like the worm going through as we spoke about a minute ago and the regret for not experiencing salvation when it was so easy. But the guilt and the regret because I believe that if you as an individual, and let's just use a parent for instance, if a parent goes to hell and say that their actions have caused their children to go to hell, I believe that parent will be able to witness their children's torment. I believe that son's and daughters will witness their parents' torment. That brothers and sisters will witness each other. Parents will, list, will witness their children's torment. That you'll witness the torment of your best friends. It's just awful. And the, the reason that I titled it Hell's Inexpressible Anguish is because everything that I've said has come from my finite, temporary, fallen mind looking at Scripture and saying, I believe that this is what the Scripture teaches on hell. But my mind is weak and frail. God's is not. And hell isn't imagined or created by man. Hell is created by the holy God whose hatred of sin is so severe that a woman bit a fruit and it condemned mankind throughout eternity. So if you think that your sins are idle, or my sins are idle and can be winked at or overlooked. Eve bit a fruit and we are still experiencing the repercussions of that. Now, Psalm, I believe it's 16 verse 10 and Peter quotes it, Act 2.27, God prophesying through David about Jesus. He says, you won't leave your soul in hell. You won't leave my soul in hell. You won't suffer your Holy One. You won't allow your Holy One to suffer corruption. So I don't think it's good that we end the, end the service there and leave everybody in hell because that's been a pretty bleak uh, message. So we're going to flip the page now and we're going to go to heaven's inconceivable joy. And I'm not going to spend as long on this aspect. But if heaven has an or if hell has inexpressible anguish, then you can multiply that to the nth degree and still wouldn't be in the ballpark of the joy that heaven brings. It's inconceivable, meaning that our minds can't perceive or can't conceive of it 
because our minds can't grasp nor conceive the glory of Jesus. Before I break this down a little bit further, I want to read a quote by Martin Luther and a couple verses or passages on heaven. Martin Luther said, I would not give one moment of heaven, one moment, one second of heaven, for all of the joy and the riches of the world, even if those riches and joys of the world lasted for thousands and thousands of years. I wouldn't trade one second of heaven for thousands and thousands of years of worldly joy, worldly pleasure. All right, let's read, read a few verses here. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Isaiah 25, 6-9 In my Father's house are many rooms, King James says, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Blessed, that's John 14, 2 and 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7, 15 and 17. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away, and He was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelation 21, 4 through 7. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. The reason that I read those quotes instead of just breaking down my diagnosis or my thesis or trying to exegete or explain heaven is because I believe that letting scripture explain heaven is far better than just me trying to. Heaven is inconceivable in that my mind can't explain it. My mind can't conceive it. I do have this one thought that I want to convey, and then I'll, wrap, I'll begin a conclusion and kind of wrap it up. The thought is this. If you can imagine, and this is actually a quote. I was in prayer 
and God gave this to me. And you can say, God spoke to me audibly. It wasn't audible. It was in my heart. You can say, it came to me through the Spirit. However you want to view that. God gave me this quote. Heaven is heaven only because Jesus is Jesus. If you can imagine heaven without Jesus, there's something missing. If the streets of gold or the waters of crystal or the pearl gates are enough for you, then something is missing. Heaven is only heaven because Jesus is always Jesus. See, we have such a capacity as humans to get bored with the most marvelous things. I mean, indoor plumbing is amazing and we take it for granted, but can you imagine not having it anymore? I mean, TV is wonderful. Take it away and see what you do with your time. I'm just saying we have so many luxuries in America that a lot of people, even in America, don't have that third world countries couldn't even fathom having. But we take it for granted like it's, it's no big deal. So how long do you think it would take for us to take streets of gold for granted? Unless, of course, you're a televangelist, then you might be... Never mind. Um, but how long do you think it would take before you took those streets of gold for granted? How long do you think it would take before you just got used to the pearly gates? And it was just another thing. Or the, the seas of glass, or the crystal waters. Just be another thing. Maybe it would take 10,000 years, but eventually you'd be content with it, you'd take it for granted, and you'd be bored with it. But God Amen. can never end. You can never know all there is to know. Right now we see in part, then we'll see face to face, but we will forever, for all of eternity, be exploring and learning and understanding and perceiving of His infinite worth, of His infinite glory. It says that salvation and grace are so amazing that the angels desire to look into the depths of it. And if the angels and all of their awesomeness still can't perceive grace and they want to look further into grace, how long do you think we would be able to look into just that aspect of grace? For all of eternity, we'll be looking into the redemption plan and the plan of salvation and never fully perceiving it in its entirety and still learning more. Maybe that's why they, some preachers say the angels go around and they circle and they say, holy, because they get a glimpse of God. And when they circle around again, they get a fresh glimpse of God and they see something else and they're like, holy. And then a third time and they see a glimpse of God and they're taken off guard by this aspect that they hadn't perceived in the millennia that they've been circling already and they say, holy, forever and always we will be overwhelmed by the glory that is God. In conclusion, I want to say this. And it's a Charles Spurgeon quote. He said, there is no crown wearers there, meaning heaven, that were not cross bearers here, meaning earth. Today we have a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Today is the day of salvation. Choose today death or life. And God even goes further. But I beg you to choose life. Today we have a choice. Heaven or hell's inexpressible anguish or heaven's inconceivable joy. And there's one way to do it. That's what this whole thing has been about. John 3.16 For by grace are we saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of yourselves. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by the grace of God through Christ by faith, and it is forever. There's only one way. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess Him with your mouth. Believe in your heart that Jesus is risen and confess with your life. I don't know that quote. Repent and believe. That's how. That's how we're saved. Receive God's grace.
that He supplied to us in Christ. Hold on to it by faith and thank God that it lasts forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm so thankful for Your grace. Lord, I kind of bum myself out when I just study on hell and what people are going to experience that go there. And Matthew 7, when it says, many shall find that gate of destruction. Many. And there's so few that find the gate that leads to everlasting life. God, I just say this. And I say it to you and to this congregation. If there is anyone, anyone here that cannot say with absolute certainty that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ and know Him as their Lord and as their Savior, if there is anyone, Lord, I ask them to come now. Let us pray for them. Let us minister to them. Let them believe in their heart and make that confession that You are Lord today. Because God, our life is a vapor and we're not promised tomorrow. I don't try to scare people into heaven because I know they can be scared out just as easy. But God, it's a very re real and it's very, very terrifying to know that there will be millions that are condemned to everlasting fire. Lord, all of the people of all time separated into two groups. This group that goes to life everlasting. This group that goes to eternal suffering. Please, God, by the working of Your Spirit, minister to their hearts and let them leave here knowing of certainty that they're saved. So I'm going to extend and open it up in a moment. And I'm not going to linger because if the Spirit is moving on your heart, then you, you know it. And if not, then go your way in good faith. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you can't say that you're going to go to heaven, if you can't say that you're going to spend an eternity in His presence, then let's rectify that. Let's fix that situation. Come and let us introduce you to the Savior of all mankind. To the One who loves you more than you've ever loved yourself and more than anyone else has loved you. To the One who made a way when there was no way. To the One who paid the price when the price was unfathomable. Lord, this has been a solemn message, but I thank You, God, for giving me the ability to, to convey it. And I probably could have done better, but Lord Jesus, I just give the results to You. It doesn't matter if the sower has the ability to throw a seed 30 feet or 20 feet. You're the one that ultimately provides the increase. So God, You use the finite words and finite mind 
that stands before you to penetrate the finite hearts. Lord, let everyone look to you and let everyone experience your glorious salvation and the love of God that changes hearts and minds. The love of God that surpasses understanding. The love of God that consumes us and compels us to live a life that brings you glory. In Jesus' name.